So are we ready for a quiz? Not everyone is here. I wonder what we should do about a quiz. Well, you should take it. You should get your reward for being ready for it. What up, dude? Okay, so what is this for? Uh, knowledge. Yeah. Okay, so it so it's not a temperate thing to do. Okay, good. Yeah, that's something that we need to think about. Okay, let's go. Did I just lose my spot? Let's go a little bit. I really we're, we're going to start book three. Did everyone start reading at least the first Canto book three? Um, good. You all you're all looking either nodding or you're looking innocent. Um, <laughs> and you know this is all about innocence, really. It's about the triumph of innocence. So I like to see innocence triumph. Um, but will it? Uh, okay, let us uh, first go to Canto uh, 6 of um, uh, Book 2. And um, uh, so go, go to around page 270. Um and what's happened is um, Guyon is the, the book begins by saying that it's really hard um, to learn continence, which is another name for temperance. Um, that is keeping yourself um, in control of yourself. Um, it's really hard to learn continence when it comes to pleasure, much more than when it comes to pain. Um, and um, so there we are um, and uh, he, he Guyon, sees a little gondole, which is how uh, the word gondola used to be pronounced all the way to the beginning, at least, of the 19th century in England. Um, and therein sat, this is page 267, and therein sat a lady fresh and fair, making sweet solace to herself alone. Sometimes she sung as loud as lark in air, sometimes she laughed, but nigh her breath was gone. It was there not with her else anyone that might to her that might to her move cause of merriment. Matter of mirth enough, though she were none, she could devise and thousand ways invent to feed her foolish humor and vain jollament. Um, that seems an interesting stanza by way of first. The first half of it, be, but it breaks down into two parts. Um, the first half is kind of beautiful. Um, she sings, she laughs, um, she's, she's um, solacing herself, she's enjoying herself, it's sweet. And then there's a kind of comment, which is, but she's all alone while she's doing this, and that's really kind of silly. Um, and it just shows how vain and foolish and empty she is, that she's, that she's entertaining herself in this way. Um, now, making sweet solace to herself alone, there's, of course, a sexual edge to that, um, as there was when, um, when um, Red Cross poured himself out in looseness to the grassy ground. Um, it's not that the sexual edge is the final meaning of it, though. It's not that, oh, look, it's sex. It's rather that that sex itself is somewhat symbolic. And what it's symbolic of, let's just say, I just want to get, get through this fairly quickly, but what it's symbolic of 
is not interacting with others. That is, what's wrong with um, masturbation in the Fairy Queen, let's say, is not that, heavens, it's masturbation and that's clearly evil. It's masturbation is sex without relationship to another person. And it's relating to other people that Spencer is um, putting as an extremely important um, feature of the moral world. What Arthur does that's good is that he goes and helps people. What all the knights do that's good is that they go and help people. They care for those in distress. They try to rescue those in distress. And um, not doing that, there are various ways of being a self-dealer. And it's being a self-dealer that Spencer is against. Um, and masturbation is only one of many ways of self-dealing in The Fairy Queen, and probably a symbolic way um, rather than a real way. But braggadocio is an example of a self-dealer, someone who only wants to be thought, um, uh, only wants to impress people. Duessa is obviously a self-dealer, except with really those really interesting exceptions. Um, uh, Archimago is a self-dealer. The Sands brothers are self-dealers. But it's as though what Spencer's trying to do is to say the opposite of being a self-dealer is what virtue is. And the opposite of that has to have something to do with interacting with others. Now, again, to talk about how allegory works, this is going to be more important in book three than in book two, but to talk about how allegory works, allegory can go two ways on this very issue. One way is to say everything is simply a projection of myself. Everything in the world is only, only counts as part of me, as a sign of who and what I am. So, I'm Red Cross, I'm with Una. The fact that I'm with Una means that Una represents my own holiness. That would be a mistake on Red Cross's part. But it's a mistake that's not a mistake if he thinks that that's what pride is representing to him, his own pride. Or error is representing to him, is his own error. Or despair is representing to him, his own despair. So sometimes an allegorical figure will just be a way of meeting yourself and seeing what you're really like. Swift has a famous definition of satire as a mirror, he says glass, but, but I'll translate, as a mirror in which anyone, anyone who looks into that mirror will see every face but his own. That's Swift's definition of satire. Um, in a sense, what allegory is, is a mirror where you can see your face as it truly is. It shows you what you really are. The picture of Dorian Gray is picking up on this. Um, but what satire, um, excuse me, what allegory shows you is, is um, what you really are. And the lots of adventures in the Fairy Queen work that way. But on the other hand, sometimes you can be mistaken and think that you're seeing a mirror of what you really are, and you look kind of good to yourself. <coughs> and when that happens, you're not seeing what you really are. What is happening now is that an allegorical figure can be misunderstood 
by a character. And what that also means is that we always have to think about how to understand any allegorical figure as a version of a character or as another person. And that's the tension, the productive, the fruitful tension that you have all the time in allegory is, is another person who shows up, are they simply a way of symbolizing the first person or are they a person who has to be taken seriously in his or her own right? And that tension, allegory tends to, tends, when it's badly done, to not treat anyone except the central character seriously. Everyone else is just there for them. And so let's just um, use that as a mildly philosophical terminology. Um, that we can say that there are things that are for oneself and then there are things that are in <coughs> themselves. And an allegorical figure is, is, the more allegorical it is, the more it's for a character rather than something in itself rather than something that has its own independent existence. And the more a figure is in itself, the more it's a separate and independent figure. Allegories are on the forepart of that distinction. An allegorical figure is for another. We don't spend a lot of time worrying about what despair is doing when Red Cross isn't there. How is despair spending his time? Poor despair, he must be despairing. Even though that's what Spencer says at the end of the story of despair. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about mammon underground and what he's doing with his money. He is for Guyon. Despair is for Red Cross. But there are other characters who are in themselves. And you can know that a character is in itself if that character has its own adventure. Una has an adventure. Red Cross thought Una was for him, but he had to learn that Una was in herself, that, she, that she's a real person, that she has her own adventure, that she's not like error and not like pride and not like despair. So there's a kind of meta-allegory here, which is that you have to distinguish, and the story is a, an allegory telling you you have to distinguish between real people and unreal people which is something we have to do in life as well. But, it, but that distinction requires you to see that there are more real people than you may have realized. That people are not only there for, your, for you, but that they're there for themselves also. And Red Cross has to learn that. And the question is, does Guyon learn it? That would be the question for book two. Now when we get to Canto 6, we see a figure who it's hard to say, is she for Guyon or is she in herself? And that stanza, and therein sat a lady fresh and fair, making sweet solace to herself alone. Sometimes she sung as loud as lark in air, sometimes she laughed that night her breath was gone. It was there not with her else anyone that might to her move cause of merriment. 
manner of mirth, matter of mirth enough, though there were none she could devise, and thousand ways invent to feel her foolish humor and vain jollament. Okay, is she for Guyon or in herself? You're nodding. Yeah, so you're taking that as the inclusive or. Moby Dick or the whale. Well, which, which is it, Mr. Melville? No, that's what it is. It's Moby Dick or the whale. Um, is she in herself or is she for Guyon? What are the arguments, either way? What are the arguments against either way, if you want to do it, if you want to do it that way? Huh. Um, if she were just for Guyon, she wouldn't have the adventure with Clyde. <laughs> yeah. Um, him. <laughs> um, so Anyone pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah, good. okay. It was chlamydia in my head. So yes. Uh, no, no very much not, <laughs> although it's interesting that, yeah. <laughs> Didn't actually fit with the rhyme scheme very well either, right. so whatever. Um, <laughs> and so she wouldn't have had that, her own adventure, like, with him if, like, he could have just been on the island mm -hmm. if she was just four guys. Right. Okay, good. Yeah, Doug. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I can think of something else. Um, what about in this very stanza that we just looked at? Yes. Okay. Um, well, the whole point of her being just for Guyon is that she's completely in herself. It'd be impossible for mirth to be not mirth if she was not completely in herself. But then, at the same time, paradoxically, that is the thing that makes her also for Guyon. Uh-huh. Okay, did, does everyone get that? What Vino just said? Okay, what does the stanza say about her? Does it describe her as being for Guyon, or does, does it describe her as having an independent existence? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think it seems to describe her as having an independent existence, but what, what is interesting uh, is that there, there is this observational quality to what's going on. There, there's no hint that she recognizes Guyon, uh -huh. and therefore must exist outside of Guyon's world. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, to what extent does she serve as something sort of, uh, I don't know, like voyeur or something like that, that, uh, you know, for Guyon or for whoever passes by uh, in the capacity of, you know, just, just someone as, as something to observe and something to be seduced by. Okay, good. Nicely put. Um, so maybe we could, we could summarize this a little bit. We, we'll move on from this in a second, but we could summarize this a little bit by saying... Um, we can untangle it fairly reasonably if we say that what she's doing is um, kind of acting as though she's not for another. That is, that uh, what she represents is someone who's just waiting around, um, or, you know, the software is making her wait around until, um, until... Guyon um, um, enters in this in this uh, massive game, um, and then she does her little subroutine, which is to solace herself alone. And what that would be is for Guyon, and what would be for Guyon is the appearance of being in herself. Um, so 
So here she seems to be um, un, unaware of him, but on some deep level she's aware of appearing to be unaware of him. And that would then make her for him. Um, but the weird thing, though, is that the criticism of her is that she's unaware of him. And if you try to solve it that way, by saying actually she is aware of him, then the criticism goes away. Then it turns out that um, she's feeling mirth as actual, uh, not, as, not because she feels mirth, but because she's trying to get Guyon. And so there's, I, I just want to, does this make sense to people? Yes. I don't want to make too much of it, but the point is that Spencer is more and more willing to just notice tensions between allegory and the moral lesson of allegory. And the moral lesson of allegory, or the moral lesson um, turns out not to be a lesson that allegory can teach. Um, the kind of moral lesson allegory can teach is you should be priggish. You should take everyone that you meet as a warning to you, and you should avoid the mistakes of all those around you. That is, um, in a way, the baseline moral lesson of any um, standard um, allegory at all. Um, and that's why this very canto begins by saying um, it's, it's easier to learn to avoid, to avoid bad things than to avoid pleasant things. The reason it's easy to learn to avoid bad things is because you go through an allegorical world and you just get warning after warning about how bad these things are. You meet gluttony and, um, or sloth, and they're essentially unable to do anything. Gluttony is too heavy to move, and sloth is too tired to move, and you don't say to yourself, boy, what a temptation. I must eat more and sleep more because I want to be like them. Um, you don't say that. What you say is quite the reverse, which is, this is easy enough not to want to do. Um, but, so most of allegory takes the form of presenting, I don't say Spencer, but most allegory takes the form of presenting you negative pictures of a kind of human being you could be that you don't want to be. So allegory is kind of rejectionist in that sense. Um, don't be like your neighbors. Don't be like all those other people. Don't be like all the jerks around you. Um, you know, the best example of that is, is something like driving, where everyone feels driving, that they're really the only virtuous person on the road, um, and that they're just, especially in Massachusetts, um, <laughs> that everyone in every other car is just, God, why are they doing this? And they're examples either of stupidity or of nastiness. Um, and um, that's, that's that part of a human willingness to quickly dismiss others is something that allegory, um, not Spencer, but that allegory in general tends to play to. Um, I mean, really, it's, it's, I meant this as an example, but it's a really good example, is you think of, of other drivers as their cars. So you see a Hummer, and that's an allegorical depiction of a certain kind of jerkiness, and you see a Mercedes, and that's an allegorical description of a certain other kind of jerkiness, and you see a Prius, and that's an allegorical description of self-righteousness, and, you know, just, you look at their cars, and you just shake your head, because all you need to know, you know, from what kind of car they're driving, you know, there's, there's, um, 
here's a guy driving a, um, I, I hope I'm not naming your cars or your parents' cars, but, um, you know, there's someone driving, come on, a Cadillac SUV? What kind of, uh, I shouldn't go this, should I? Um, but at any rate, uh, just think about how you feel about, about jerks on the road. Um, or sports fans, you know, people who root for the wrong team. Um, they all reveal what jerks they are by, by what cars they drive and who they root for. Um, that is how allegory generally works. And it has this nasty, dismissive edge to it, it or it uses our tendency towards being nastily dismissive in that way. Um, but now Spencer is actually thinking about these issues. And he's saying, it's really easy to hate the Sands Brothers, and it's really easy, once you strip Duessa, it's really easy to say, oh my gosh, she's disgusting. But then Spencer wants you to think, but is that actually the appropriate way to respond to her? She's also humiliated at that moment. It's a horrible moment for her. And suddenly, you're supposed to feel, I think, like actually the revealing what Duessa really is that's sort of unpleasant. That's an unpleasant thing to do. That's not actually the triumph of virtue at that point. Um, okay, Spencer thinks it's the triumph of virtue. It's his poem. We have to enter into his view of the world in order to get what we can out of his poem. You know, the same is true whenever you read um, any great work of literature, is that you have to accept, you know, that... that um, Odysseus making a sacrifice to Zeus um, is a good thing to do, and we're glad that he's doing it, even though it's kind of disgusting to kill those animals that way. Um, but we accept that as part of the part of the rules for the game of the poem, and we tend to think, okay, so Spencer is doing the same thing. Um, but I think the important thing is to see is that Spencer isn't doing the same thing. That Spencer knows what the rules are supposed to make him do and he starts resisting those rules. And here is a good example of that. So here's Mirth, and what is she doing? Or what is, what is she, what's going on here? She's just enjoying herself, not doing any harm, but just enjoying herself. And then, um, as with despair, go a little farther. Now go to, to stanza 15 <coughs> of Canto 6 of Book 2. Um, and we get this beautiful description of the floating island, uh, starting at stanza uh, 13. No tree whose branches did not bravely spring. Um, this, by the way, is a, is a um, famous example of a, of a wonderful rhetorical scheme in poetry, where, um, you, where every next line picks up the last noun from the previous line. So no tree whose branches did not bravely spring if you want to know the name of this, it's anadiplosis, but I don't think you want to know the name. Can you stop that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to you after class. Um, no tree, I bet there's a note on it actually. No tree whose branches did not bravely spring, no branch whereon a fine bird did not sit, no bird but did her shrill notes sweetly sing, no song but did contain a lovely dit, a lovely ditty. So then he goes back to all the nouns. Trees, branches, birds, and songs were framed fit for to allure frail mind to careless ease. Careless the man soon walks, 
and his weak wit was overcome of thing that did him please. So pleased did his wrathful purpose fair appease. And then she sings, the whiles with a loud lay she thus him sweetly charmed, and now we're in stanza 15. Behold, O man, the toilsome pains dost take, the flowers, the fields, and all that pleasant grows, how they themselves do thine and sample make, whiles nothing envious nature <coughs> them forth, well, them forth throws out of her fruitful lap. How no man knows they spring, they bud, they blossom fresh and fair, and deck the world with their rich pompous shows. Yet no man for them taketh pains or care, yet no man to them can his careful pains compare. Um, notice that here we have a four others. No one does anything for them. And an in himself. No man can compare himself, in himself, to, and his experiences of careful pain, to them. Um, the lily, lady of the flowering field, the fleur-de-lis, her lovely paramour, bid thee to them thy fruitless labors yield, and soon leave off this toilsome, weary stour. Lo, lo, how brave she decks her bounteous bower with silken curtains and gold coverlets, therein to shroud her sumptuous bellamour. Yet neither spins nor cards, nay cares nor threats, <coughs> but to her mother nature all her care she lets. Why then dost thou, O man, that of them all art lord and eke of nature sovereign, willfully make thyself a wretched thrall, and waste thy joyous hours in needless pain, seeking for danger and adventures vain. What boots it all to have and nothing use? Who shall him rue that swimming in the main will die for thirst? And water doth refuse, refuse such fruitless toil, and present pleasures choose. Okay, does anyone know what she's referring to here? There's a famous biblical text. The, the lilies of the field, they neither spin. And yeah, behold, the lilies of the field, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yeah, it was finer than Solomon. His glory yeah. was not arrayed as one of these. Yes, but Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Um, so what she's actually doing here is quoting Jesus, who is saying you can trust in God, or in this case you can trust in nature, or at least you can trust that things will, um, that there's a providence that will take care of things, and that you shouldn't try to do stuff yourself, but you should simply trust in the bounty and beneficence of the universe. Um, that's not such a bad lesson for Guyon to learn, is it? Or what makes it a bad lesson? Why, how, how is this, you know, despair, we can see what's wrong with despair. And um, part of what's wrong with despair is um, the way he is offering death as a kind of ease. She uses the word ease also. Um, but you're about it's to not, say... It's not Guyon, though. No, no, no. Yeah, okay. No, but ev to the extent that everything is for Guyon. Okay. okay. No. Um, so, so, nevertheless, what's wrong with what she's saying? Yes. 
<laughs> it's the measure. It's too much of a good thing. Uh huh. Um, and Which is an interesting allegorical self-contradiction, right? Yeah, with all the good things that are in this book, even with the Bow of Bliss, he's always amazed how beautiful it is. Yeah. And he thinks that it should look gross in some way, but yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. And it's that that struggle to not enjoy anything too much, as well as not suffer or not do anything bad. Mm-hmm. And he does that the whole way. He's just, just, just doesn't feel anything, doesn't do anything. Doesn't want. It's only Sissy and Flossie. That nearly, nearly wrecked his, um, you know, his um, his uh, discipline, and then the palmer had to tell him a couple of things, <coughs> and then he, you know, turned aside. Okay. And yeah. this is the idle lake too. Yes. So that seems to be the other end of the extreme. Mm. Right, it's idleness. It's idleness. So that not working, you know, enjoying nature's bounty is one thing, but being idle is taking that too far. Yeah. Okay, um, so then the question is. Um, well, it's a little bit like that bizarre world thing that that um, idleness might be taking temperance too far, um, and that's interesting because it might be that idleness is the opposite of temperance that looks very close to temperance. Um, that is not making a fuss about things. That's what she's saying: don't make a fuss. But it might be that this is one of those almost self-antonyms that idleness is a really easy thing for temperance to slip into. Um, idleness is a really easy thing to mistake for temperance. But he shows no mercy, even to Tantalus. He doesn't, he just says, serves you right, you. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. He has no kindness. It's only when the uh, damsel is in distress that he feels the urge to go and help. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. He, he's, well, the word we use over and over again is that he's priggish. Um, so what do we think? Let's get to the Bower of Bliss. What do we think of the destruction of Bower of Bliss? And maybe a, a first way of asking that question is to ask, what exactly is wrong with the Bower of Bliss? Um, and I don't mean what's wrong with acrasia. That is, so acrasia is weakness of the will, remember. Um, and weakness of the will, that's another, that, that would, <coughs> idleness would be, would be one form of weakness of the will. Um, that is, fall asleep. Think about um, what falling asleep means. You can't will yourself asleep. Um, and so being able to fall asleep means, in some sense, relinquishing the will. And what he does is he falls asleep. She sings him to sleep. That's what we've just seen. Um, but but um, weakness of the will... Um, sure, that's bad. Idleness is one species of it. Incontinence is another. That is when you can't check your own anger. Um, how is weakness of the will the opposite of temperance? Temperance is strength of will. To hey, refrain. Te- okay, yeah. So temperance is almost like isometric power. So do you guys know what... There used to be a vogue for isometric exercises. Do you know what they are? It's like you can do this... Or you can do this. And you can tell the slight difference between this and this by the fact that when I do this, my arms are trembling a little bit. So what am I doing when I'm doing this? I'm pushing hard. My, my two hands are pushing hard against each other. And even though I'm not moving, I'm actually using a lot of energy because, because, I'm, because the muscles are working against each other. Whereas if I just do this and try to fake it, um, nothing is happening. So this is idleness, just mm, faking it. And this 
is strength of will to refrain. That is, in both cases, I'm not doing anything. But there's a bad way, and this is the bizarro opposite of itself. There's a bad way of not doing something, which is to be too lazy to do it. Um, ben, who's too lazy in Purgatorio? Do you remember? No, other Ben. No. Del Aqua. Del Aqua. who's just too lazy to try and even start climbing the mountain at Purgatory. Um, famous, famous figure of laziness in the Purgatorio. Dante meets him and says, why aren't you trying to get to heaven? He says, it's just not worth it. Um, <laughs> he's just kind of slumped there. Um, too lazy. And um, then there is um, the strength to refrain. But then the strength to refrain in some way indicates that the temptation is tremendous. One of the puzzling things about the Cave of Mammon is that it's clearly felt to be something wrong that um, Guyon is doing. Why else would he be there? Um, it's the equivalent, you could say, of the House of Pride. What is it about the Cave of Mammon? that, um, that What does it say about him? We haven't seen any conspicuous greed on Guyon's part. Why should that be such an enormous temptation? It's not like Red Cross, he's obviously proud, fine. How is Guyon greedy? He wants honor. He wants honor, but he's not that greedy for it. And he certainly doesn't seem to want money. Um, why that... Seriously, think about it. Why that temptation? Just... Brainstorm it. Actually, my problem with that whole section was that I didn't think he was tempted at all. Okay, but Not let's even slightly. Okay, but let's say Spencer is saying he is tempted, mm. which is which is certainly what Milton kind of thinks he is. Um, otherwise, it's just pointless. Now you could say, yeah, Guyon's a prig, and the whole point is that there are lots of temptations there that any um, any sane person would say, oh, that actually does kind of look pretty good. Um, do you guys know the show Lost in Space, the 60s show that you can see on TV land sometime? Um, and there was a movie of it, which I haven't seen. Have you seen the movie? Yeah, it was pretty good. Was it? Okay. Well, Lost in Space is basically, it's the Space Family Robinson. So if you know the Swiss Family Robinson, it's that's updated to 1960s um, John F. Kennedy um, space exploration. And the Space Family Robinson is just goes sort of like, um, um, like in Serenity... Um, it, like Fireflight just goes from, from uh, place to place where they have these strange adventures. The reason they're not going where they're supposed to go is that there's a stowaway on their spaceship, Dr. Smith. Um, and Dr. Smith, you know, there's this wonderful virtuous family, including Will Robinson and the robot. If you've ever heard Danger, Danger Will Robinson, that comes from that show. Um, and... Uh, the robot is very courageous and it's always protecting Will Robinson and Will Robinson is very courageous and he's 10 years old and he's always protecting his family and his family's always wise and kind of kind of uh, like the Cosby family. And But then there's Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith is just selfish and fearful and just he's, he's um, uh, just, just a, a loser type. And I remember watching this when I was 12 years old and... Um, suddenly it hit me with the force of a revelation that every reaction that Dr. Smith has, like a monster starts attacking the spaceship when they're on some planet and they're helpless, a huge, gigantic, disgusting, um, Mothro-like monster. 
starts attacking them. And Dr. Smith is frightened. And I said to myself, well, yeah. Or he goes to some other planet and he's offered unbelievable wealth and uh, an ability to return to Earth. And he thinks, huh, yes, I'm going to take that money. And I think to myself, yeah, well, of course. Um, or he goes to you know, some other planet and he's offered um, sex with an enormous number of available women at no cost. And he's tempted. And I'm thinking, uh-huh. And it became clear that the really interesting thing about Lost in Space is that Dr. Smith is the only person who actually has human responses to any of these things. Um, and we're supposed to hate him. But he's also the only person who's, who has a reasonable response to an enormous series of temptations that, that, um, that are given him. He's frightened of scary things. He's hungry for delicious things. Um, he wants to have sex with beautiful things. Um, and he wants to get home if he can. Um, and all of that is human. And um, there's a sense in which Guyon's more and more represented as inhuman in the course of the book. Yeah. I mean, only to a certain extent, though, just because um, <clears throat> I feel like Guyon is tempted by the same error he makes at the beginning of the book, which is to think he has mastered temperance, uh, and he is the most temperate person good. in the world. Good, good, um, good. And so while he easily bypasses all these normal, you know, signs of greed or, or you know, whatever, um, he... When he comes to the place where you know, all the souls of the damned are, uh, he is given the opportunity to sit on this on this throne um, because he is the you know he's the most temperate individual there, and uh, he he allows himself to recognize that, and so he becomes sort of for a brief period of time a ruler of the intemperate, or maybe the, the, like, the king of temperance among, you know, yeah. just sort of a, a lowly intemperance, when really what he should be doing is more or less blending in with the crowd. Good, nice. So, so there's a way in which you could say of Guyon, and I think maybe this is the best way to understand him, is that he has a little bit of an anorectic personality. And what I mean by that is that Guyon actually seeks temptation. He likes being tempted in order to refuse temptation. And that's what's kind of isometric about him, is that um, it's not... There, you know, it's, it's um, I am told, just mentioning, uh, that one of the things that you are told in AA is that you, you will be tempted to show that you can say no to a drink um, by going to bars and not drinking. And you'll also be tempted to say no to a drink um, by saying, yeah, I can have one and stop with one. That these are, that people who really want to stop drinking and who have the strength of will to stop drinking um, will fall into an error, which is to think that they can actually show their strength of will by only drinking a little or by going where there is alcohol available so that they can use their willpower not to drink. And it's a temptation for those who are trying to refrain. There are, two, there are basically two ways, or if you think about what weakness of the will means. Weakness of the will means you don't want to do something 
and yet you succumb, even though you don't want to succumb. Some philosophers think it's an incoherent idea. You only do what you will to do. So how can there be such a thing as weakness of the will? But one answer to that is you want to be tempted, and the temptation is real, so that you can show the strength of your will by resisting temptation. And that's something that people really like to do, um, especially when you make a resolution of some sort. Um, you really like to demonstrate to yourself how you're keeping that resolution by giving yourself little adventures where you don't succumb. Um, and this happens on, on small levels and large levels. Um, but that refusal to succumb is a kind of embrace of temptation. And it's not temperate. You don't show that you're temperate by being a non-drinking alcoholic who spends a lot of time at bars. Um, it, it's a fake temperance to do that. It's like borrowing trouble. Like what? Borrowing trouble. Borrowing trouble. Nice. Um, exactly. So there's a sense in which, why is Guyan so attracted to money, you could say, in order to refuse it? So the very thing that, he's, that it looks like he's simply refusing and there's no problem, that refusal is actually the sign of an attraction. It's not that he refuses it thoughtlessly. It's that he wants the experience of being tempted and refusing. He wants, he wants his will to be iron. He wants to insist on an iron will. So why does he go to the Bower of Bliss? Oh, it's so beautiful and I don't care. In a way, that's what his attitude towards the Bower of Bliss is. Um, one, what I wanted us to get to about the Bower of Bliss, we're going to start with the Bower of Bliss tomorrow, but what I wanted to get to about it is what's wrong with the Bower of Bliss allegorically? Not, it's not only that Ecrasia wounds there, now we're slowly introducing Spencerian vocabulary to our own conversation. It's not only that Acrasia loans there, but that the Bower of Bliss is artifice that looks natural. That's the criticism of the Bower of Bliss, that it's all very artfully done to look as though it's not artfully done, as though this is nature. Artifice that looks natural, that's kind of like what allegory is at least Spencerian allegory. So there's an interesting relationship between the Bower of Bliss and Spencerian allegory. Um, but the idea of artifice that looks natural, that's also the idea of Guyon resisting temptation. He looks like he's naturally uninterested in money, but that's actually a lot of artifice behind that. Interested, but not succumbing. Looks like a natural lack of interest but that's artifice on temperance's part, not natural temperance. And that's why he needs to be cured before he goes off to the Bower of Bliss. Bina. I was going to say that if in the first book, um, Red Cross meets versions of himself at the point that he is. In the second book, all that Guyon meets are the most intemperate people uh, ever, yeah. except for Medina. So yes. it's not very hard for him to feel extremely temperate. Right, exactly. Um, and they represent the temptations that... Yeah, you know, even I mean, that mother who, who decided to, to kill herself, I mean, yeah. who in the world would not love their child enough to live for them? Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly, precisely so, maybe at the start, yeah. Okay, so uh, get through... How far into... We've read Kendo 1 in Book 3? 
basically. So get to Canto 4, Book 3, for tomorrow. That's reasonable, right? Right. Mammon, right. It, it uh, comes from Hebrew. Yes, I know. Well, is there any uh, 